Good evening, everybody. So we are toward the end of Peter's letter here, his first letter, toward the end of the series as well. And the focus on this series since the very beginning is the recognition that the recipients, the people that Peter was writing to, were exiles. And not only were they exiles metaphorically, like we're all exiles, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are exiles in this world until Christ returns and brings down the kingdom, and then we will finally be existentially home. But these recipients were also um, existentially exiles. They had been forced out of their their homes. They were forced into a new land as, uh, from the colonization efforts of the Roman emperor. And so uh, as we have worked with this theme of, of exiles, and they would have also, you know, our term may be more familiar with is immigrants in a strange land. So we've considered this message for ourselves uh, metaphorically because very few of us, if any of us, are here because we've been forced to, to live where we, we live now. And we've been thinking and considering what it means to be a, a Christian living in an increasingly secular culture that's, that's hostile to Christianity. Um, but the message of Peter is not just for those who are considered Christians. It's not, it's not just for those who um, have been uh, exiled against their will. And it's not just for us who are metaphorically exiles. Because I, th I think if we look at the reality of the human experience, and I think we can see it as clear in our own times as any, um, we have to ask ourselves the question, is anyone really ever at home? Is anyone ever really in a place where they feel safe and the people that they're around are people that they belong to and they feel, they feel loved, they feel cared for, they've got a role, um, they're, they're comfortable? Does anybody ever fully experience being at home? I mean, we've got some really stark examples right now, the Israel, Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, is anyone in those two places not afraid? Is anyone not suffering to some degree? Is anyone feeling safe and secure in those settings? You know, think back uh, in, within the last couple of weeks, uh, the people of Lewiston, Maine, 18 people killed in that mass shooting, and it left the, the entire community of, of I think it's 40,000 people, were sheltering in place for several days, um, not feeling safe, not feeling like their home was their home. We have election season upon us, and I, I've been getting a lot of mail, particularly for our city council um, election, which is for some reason, there's a strange cycle in Minneapolis's city council right now. So we have an election right now on city council members. And, um, you know, the city council candidates are all playing on the senses that people feel that right now Minneapolis is not their home. It's not, it's not feeling like home. There are people that are in need of jobs, housing, safety, security. Sometimes these things feel like that they are you know, in conflict with one another, but the candidates are all playing on this sense that people are not feeling at home and that they want Minneapolis to be more like home that they would imagine. You know, we, Ukraine, Russia, all kinds of places and events, big and small, where we, we, have, to we have to conclude that it, it's rare, if, if any, where people would say they really feel at home. Just like the original recipients of the letter, 
I think it's safe to assume that largely the human experience is anxious about jobs and financial health, safety and security, the welfare of our families, what the future holds for us. And just like the original recipients, there is this longing that we share with all humanity, Christian or not, where we want to be home. We want the place of comfort. We want to be at a place where we feel safe and secure. And we want that to last. Now, as we've seen throughout this letter, we've seen Peter emphasize the, the role and the, 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 uh, the things that are like related to family and related to community. You know, I was watching a movie this weekend, and this family was forced to move. And then the, the young girl in the family says, yeah, I, I want to be home. And the mom says, well, wherever we are at, if we're together, that's what home is. And we see that, that Peter has not only talked about a place, and he re will refer to the kingdom of God throughout his letters, but you actually see more of an emphasis in Peter's letters on the people that we belong to. There's been some, some, some teaching on family. There's been teaching on community. And we see that um, if we think back to the biblical story, that God's intent is that we would have a home. He created a place that, that humans dwelled in along with him. And everything that we desire, everything that we long for in home was present. But evil entered the world through, through deception. Humanity bought into this deception. And evil has spread since then. And the, the ultimate goal of evil is death. The book of Second Thessalonians refers to this man of lawlessness. It is actually this, the identity of this man throughout the Old and New Testaments that, that if this man of lawlessness was not being restrained by the forces of God, lawlessness and death and destruction would completely cover all of God's creation. So God is holding back the full expression of evil and lawlessness. It, it doesn't seem like it. it. It doesn't seem like it. But, it, but, it, but God is. And his, his promise is to redeem all of creation, not just people, but he's actually going to redeem all of creation. And all of creation is longing for the same thing that human beings are longing for, a rest, a rest in the kingdom. And so what God is doing, and until that time where, where, where God does that work through the person of Jesus Christ, God is building a family. He's building a people. And so we see that so far throughout the, the, the book of 1 Peter, um, Peter's referred to the fact that we've been born into an inheritance. That's a family thing, that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house and spiritual family. That's chapter 2. There's been encouragement in chapter 2 for us to, to strengthen the civic institutions of the world that we live in. That's community building. Chapter 3, we see Peter giving us instruction on strengthening families. Chapters 3 and 4, he's instructing us to be unified as a people as we live in this world on mission, being willing to endure suffering for the redemption of others. And so we see that throughout the, the, the book of 1 Peter, 
Um, resist the passions of your flesh. Re resist the passions of the culture. Pursue doing good in the building up of community, building up of family, even when you're suffering unjustly in those efforts. And so here at the close of this letter, Peter's going to leave us with some key instruction. He's going to leave us instruction, this first chunk that we're looking at tonight, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. Here's what you need to do as a community to structure yourselves in order to, to fulfill this calling that Jesus Christ has on our lives as his people, as his family, as his kingdom, as his nation. And next week, Deirdre's going to look at dealing with anxiety, which is kind of really at the heart of the whole letter, because we get anxious when things get unsettled and when we're experiencing not being home, which is all the time. So structuring the community this week, dealing with anxiety in real life next week. So this, this passage is giving instruction to elders. Now, Elders are people that have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to oversee churches. And he has the core work here. Peter doesn't get into the, to the detail that, that the Apostle Paul does in the work of an elder and the qualifications of an elder, but he's given us some key things here. And so he says to the elders to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. So there's really two key functions that Peter draws out here. First of all, the work of the shepherd. So we don't have a lot of shepherds in our culture, but I did a little research because I've never shepherded uh, actual sheep. Um, but shepherds were responsible to feed the sheep, which required moving around. So they would have to find different pastures because the sheep would uh, eat up a place and they'd have to go to the next place. And they'd have, so they'd have to move around to provide the food. So in that moving around there would be threats, predators. And so the, the shepherd would also have to protect the sheep from predators, as well as uh, diseases, things that could cause the, the animals to get sick. And he had to keep them together. I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing. Because, I mean, I think you obviously would think about it, the work of a shepherd, take the whole flock. But he really worked hard, the shepherd or the she really worked hard to keep the flock together. And then ultimately, it was the shepherd's responsibility to take the sheep to the market to meet their end. Okay, so that was his responsibility as well. And so, you know, metaphorically, uh, the, the uh, elders aren't taking the people of the church to their deaths. Um, but there is the work of the shepherd to see that we as a people get to a common end. And the second thing is exercising oversight, which means to pay careful attention, and to show concern for. So this is the work of an elder, to, to feed the people of God through the teaching and preaching of the word. And then there's, a, then there's a coaching, there's examples, there's modeling, there's keeping us all together and unified. And then taking us to, to the place where Christ is, to, uh, taking us as a people to the point where he returns, and there's a character of paying careful attention to that along the way. Now, he gets into three qualities that faithful elders are supposed to have. And he's bringing some correctives here that typically uh, befall elders if they are following passions of their flesh or passions of the culture. The first quality is that they were to serve 
willingly and not under compulsion. Now, I, tr I try to think of reasons and even maybe some examples of, of instances where an elder would be forced into serving on the elder board, and I couldn't think of any. But I can think of experiences and times, and even in my own life, where, where the work becomes so burdensome or the work becomes so stressful that you begin to have thoughts of, you know, do I keep doing this? And if, if, if you ask yourself those questions as an elder, and you, your answer is, you know what, I made the commitment, this is my obligation, I'm going to do it. Peter's saying, listen, that's, that's not good. That's not good. You need to answer that question, should I keep doing this? Because yes, I, I really want to do it. I sense God's calling me to do it, and I want to do it. I want to serve in this way. I want to help build up the church. Yes, it's tough, but if I follow the example of Christ that Peter has been consistently referring to, we know that the pattern of life in Christ, the thing that he's called all people to, not just elders, the pattern of life in Christ is to be called to suffering for the benefit of others. That is the life in Christ. And so an elder needs to, to have that quality. Yes, this is something that I want to do. If they don't have that quality, what happens is that elders will grow bitter at the work, which means that they're going to grow bitter at the people that they are called to serve. They begin to disdain and look down upon. And that's not going to work well in shepherding the people of God because it's going to create resentment and that anger is going to be expressed in, in hostile speech and malicious speech and actions and it just perverts the sincere service to God and to the people. The second quality, not for, shape, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, throughout all of history, I mean, the earliest manuscripts that we have of the first century outside of the, outside of the, um, the Bible itself reflect that, you know, there's, there are going to be people, you see this in the New Testament, there are going to be people that try to take advantage of churches for selfish gain. If you can manipulate people spiritually, um, they, you, can, you can manipulate and coerce them to give you money. I mean, we see it in our culture. It happened 2,000 years ago. It happened before Christ. It's just there. You can, you can use legalism and pressure and threats and fear to get people to give you money for, for talking about religious things. And so the motivation of the preacher, excuse me, the motivation of the elder, some of whom are called to rule and to lead, and then the church is actually called to support them. It's called the aunt. It's, Paul, the Apostle Paul, refers it to the, the honor. There's an honor of compensation that comes for some elders who rule and to preach well. But that cannot be the motivation. You know, what, I, what, I, what I've told people that want to be in vocational ministry is, is if there's anything else that you can do, do it. Because you're going to get to the point where you... Where, where, it's going to be a significant challenge. And if you're just doing it for the money, you cannot, you cannot do that. It has to be something that you're doing because you want to do it ultimately. And money cannot be the motivation for the work. The third quality that he points out is that you cannot be domineering. You have to be examples. And so 
when you, get, when you get domineering, when we get domineering as people, we're trying to push our way to cause things to happen. And he says, listen, if you're domineering and you're forceful, you're going to break up the church. You're not going to accomplish their purpose. Domination reflects selfish ambition. There's something else at stake other than the health of the church and the maturity of the people. There's something personal at stake if, if a church leader gets domineering and forceful. They use anger and manipulation and lying and threats to get their way to accomplish their purposes. Peter says, rather than be forceful, you need to prove yourself to be an example. If there's something that you are calling the church to do as an elder in your work of feeding or protecting, lead the way. You do it. Let people follow you. Don't force them into something that you're not doing. Lead the way and they'll follow. And then he says there's a reward for the work. There's the unfading crown of glory from the chief shepherd. Now, the New Testament mentions three crowns. There's the crown of glory in this passage. There's the crown of righteousness uh, that Paul refers to in 2 Timothy. Then there's the crown of life that James refers to for those who persevere in the faith. And so basically, these crowns are rewards that Christ gives that brings, that honors. Christ is going to honor his people that persevere to the end and are faithful, which is in contrast to to some believers, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 10, uh, Paul says that there are going to be some believers that are saved, but they've done no work. They've done no work that's lasting. And he says when they're tested by the fire of judgment that will come to, to everybody, Paul says they'll be saved, but they will not have a reward. Will not have a reward. So there's motivation for not just elders, but for all Christians to persevere in faithfulness because Christ is going to reward those that do. So that's the instructions to the elders. So four of the five verses are instructions to the elders. But then he has one verse with instruction to the church body. He says, subject yourselves to the elders, which literally means to to put yourself under the control of the elders. Now, I mean, that's literally what the word submit means. Now, obviously, Peter's not referring to everything about a person's life, okay? Everything about a person's life does not fall under the control and leadership of of an elder. The elder is responsible for the health and vitality of, of us as a church, of the church and of the individual Christians, the elder is responsible to see that, that people are participating in and serving the church. The elder is responsible for the, the faithful witness and testimony of the, of the church and of individual Christians in the world. And so if there's, if there's somebody in the church or some people in the church that are dishonoring the word of God and dishonoring Jesus Christ in our culture, the elders are supposed to, to take care of those things. But they are not in control of every detail and every aspect of, of our lives. The, the, what it means to submit to the elders as a church is that we are submitting to the teaching of the elders. We are submitting to the coaching of the elders. We are submitting to the examples of the elders. And where they are calling the church to go and the teaching that they are proclaiming and instructing and equipping the church in, the church is to, to follow that. 
The church is to align themselves with that. And the big picture is that if the elders and the whole church are functioning in this way, there's a growth of individuals, there's a growth of families, there's the growth of the church, there's the growth of unity in the church, there's growth in our sense of belonging, there's a growing sense of community. Like, hey, this is my family. These are my people, which is increasingly needed in the midst of, of hostility, in the midst of tension. And that gives us that, 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 that the connection and the unity and the love that we feel with the people of God as his family, as Christians, grows and strengthens us in that sense of home, in that sense of, of security and safety, even in the midst of being in a hostile world and enduring what Peter calls fiery trials. And so there's a work, you know, a lot of our experience of it, of, of, and desire for being at home has to do with our our physical selves, and whether we're comfortable or not. What Peter is referring to is a work, if we think back to verse 1, the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is at work to, to bring cleansing into our lives and to provide that feeling that we're after, even though the external situations are quite difficult. And he closes the, the instruction here to everyone and this is really the key to the elders being able to serve with the qualities that he's described and the church being able to submit with the quality that he has described. He says to clothe yourselves with humility. Everyone, clothe yourselves with humility. So humility is the, the posturing. It's an attitude. It's a mindset of considering yourself in a lowly state. It's, it's the attitude and posture, okay? It's not your actual material circumstances. It's your attitude and posture. I am a lowly person, and others are more significant than I am. That's what it means to be humble. And he says, to close yourself with humility, yourselves as a community. Why? Because God opposes the proud, which is the opposite of humility. So pride is an exaggeration of one's own importance, and it leads to us putting down others, where humility, we think low of ourselves, and we think highly of others. Pride is we think high of ourselves, and we think low of others. And humility is needed for everyone. We're unable to maintain a posture of serving in any role in the church, but especially elders, if there's not humility. The whole church is unable to submit to the leadership of elders if there's not humility. If the elders in the whole church, if we're all in these orientations of pride, there will be no sense of belonging, no sense of community, no sense of identity. And it erodes and destroys and so, why is it so hard for us? It's a, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge to serve and to give your life for the benefit of others. It's a huge challenge to submit to authorities in our lives. And it's especially so in our culture. Why is it so hard? Well, culturally, over the last few hundred years, and we've talked a little bit about this, I'm not going to get into detail, but We've swung. So traditional cultures used to put a high priority on family and community. 
So your, your sense of identity was, I am who my people are. A sense of belonging, I have a role to fill in my family and community, and I am needed. We had a sense of honor. If, my, if, if I can bring honor to my family, then I'll be honored. If I can bring honor to my community, then I'll be honored. Meaning and purpose. My, my purpose, my meaning in life, is the welfare of my family and the community. Happiness and satisfaction. I'm happy when my family or community is thriving. That's what a traditional culture is oriented to. Us, Western culture, modern America, what happened is that the individual over time began to get oppressed <laughs> for the good of the family, for the good of the community, for the good of the nation. And so we have the emergence over the last few hundred years where the individual is now the all-important. Our identity is who we determine ourselves to be based upon our feelings and emotions. In, in terms of belonging, I love those who affirm my identity. In terms of honor, my community exists to honor me. I don't exist to serve my community. It exists to honor me. It's my platform. Meaning and purpose the purpose of my family and community is my own personal welfare. And in regard to happiness and satisfaction, I am happy when people are happy for me. And so it's, it's a massive shift that has taken place philosophically and through the arts over hundreds of years, and this is where we're at. And so as a result, our families and our social groupings are thin. They are weak. They are led by leaders whose purposes are ultimately individualistic. And I think that we can see that in religious leaders, political leaders, business leaders. They're there for themselves. And it's made up, these, their families and social groupings are made up of people who largely don't trust or fully invest. into the. They don't trust the authorities and they don't fully invest into the groups that they're a part of. Now, both orientations, living for the family or community, or living for the individual, both of these orientations fall short. See, evil's ultimate goal, like I mentioned earlier, is, is death. And we as people, ultimately, all we're trying to do is to, to live the best life we can until we die, and for those of us that believe that there's something after, some way to save our souls. Peter has this phrase, the salvation of your souls, which we know is not just a spiritual thing. It's, it's our existential. It's what we're experiencing now. It's, it's our physical health and mental health and, and emotional health and spiritual. And so we're trying to save our souls but living for the individual and living for the family is not going to do it. And all the various shifts in cultures and philosophies and religions are all various attempts to do these things. And Peter is saying that the key is not living for yourself or living for the family and the community, but humility. Because it, humility recognizes that we are all really sheep. As an individual, I'm a sheep. 
as society, as families, we are, a, we are flocks of sheep. Humility recognizes that God is the source of saving our souls and that there is a shepherd, and Peter refers to him as the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd. The saving of our souls is not going to come from us as individuals. It's not going to come from our families. It's going to come from the chief shepherd taking us to pastures to feed us, to protect us, and to ultimately take us to the end, which is, again, not being slaughtered. <laughs> That's the enemy's end goal for, for humanity. It's life. It's the salvation of our souls. So how does Jesus do this? He feeds and protects us through his word, which points us to God and his ways and warns us and protects us from the ways that aren't. He gives us his Holy Spirit, which works internally in us and externally in us as a community and in the world around us. And, you know, if we get into 2 Thessalonians, we, we understand that there are, there are angels and spiritual forces at work. And we've seen in Colossians and Ephesians where these spiritual forces of darkness and God's spiritual forces, they, they are active right now. And so God is at work protecting us through his word. Jesus is at work protecting us through his word, through his spirit, through the angels, and through his church, which is his family. We have to be a part of his family to experience the salvation of souls. You take the church out of Paul, you take the church out of Peter or any of the New Testament or the Old Testament, God's people, you remove the means through which God is at work in the world in a very substantial way. See, and, and Jesus could do this. He could play this role as the chief shepherd because he entered into, the, into, the, into humanity. He entered into his fallen creation and he, he became a sheep. Now, he wasn't lost like all of us are. But the weaknesses of humanity Christ experienced. Philippians chapter 2, it's just, it's just great on this idea of Jesus' humility. You know, he, he existed as God, but he did not consider that something to hold on to. But he, in his nature, in his nature as God, in his nature, he humbled himself like a servant. He didn't pursue personal glory. He was rejected, and he didn't pursue his family. He was rejected by his family, and he was rejected by his nation. If he would have lived for either of those things, his own personal glory or his family or nation, he would have failed in his mission. But Jesus can be our chief shepherd because he, he avoided both of those traps that we fall into, and he subjected himself to the will of the Father, who suffered and died as a human for our benefit. Evil and death then was not the final victor because he rose from the dead. So he shows that his soul was saved. His physical body was saved. And spiritually, he was saved as a human being, Jesus Christ. So death and evil did not have the final say. And he's saying, listen, if you follow me, if you follow me, you can experience the same thing. Subject yourselves to the will of the Father. And see, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And you know what? Paul says for those in chapter 2 of, of, of Ephesians, for those who have believed in Jesus Christ, you are seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. 
And Jesus is to inherit an eternal family. We're going to get an inheritance for those who have believed in Jesus Christ, but Jesus is getting an inheritance. He rejected his family and his nation on earth from following their wishes, and in the end, he is going to have a global family. It's his inheritance. And he says, if you, if you believe and you trust in me, which is expressed in obeying him, in believing the gospel first, and second, as Christians who have followed and believed in the gospel, then to serve as elders in this way and to serve as a church in this way. And let me tell you, as an elder, elders are to submit to the elders. And a single elder doesn't possess the authority of the team. We as individuals are all submitted to the team of elders. There's nobody who falls outside of that instruction to submit to the elders. And so Jesus offers this through his spirit. I will put my spirit in you. And that spirit, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, will cleanse and sanctify you and save your souls. And so this is, this is a life that Peter is calling us to. To subject ourselves to the will of God by living in humility we need it. We need the family of God, and the family of God needs us. We need to contribute to its health and vitality, to receive its love and care and protection, and enjoy the work of the Spirit as he saves our souls. Let me pray.